Hello everyone and thank you for joining me for another episode of I Don't Quite Know. Today my guest began his career as a country and western disc jockey in the heartland of America. He went on to hone his skills at NPR before pivoting into production behind the scenes at the now defunct Tech TV. With a thirst for the spotlight, that's not quite true but it does sound good, he quenched it by moving on to CNET and spearheading the now infamous Buzz Out Loud podcast with Molly Wood. A show that will go down in history as being part of what started the great podcast Revolution. Producing and hosting a literal arm's length of other shows, as well as becoming an established author, his prime focus is hosting one of the most viewed and successful daily tech news shows, which coincidentally happens to also be the name of it. He is, of course, the godfather of podcasting, Mr. Tom Merritt. Uh, thank you, man. I'm going to have to hire you to introduce me everywhere after that. Uh, <laughs> my favorite part is thinking of myself as a country and Western DJ from the heartland of America. And my, my job at WGEL never sound so prosaic before. That's <laughs> well, it's all about building it up, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Letting... <laughs> uh, no, that's fantastic. Thanks for having me, man. <laughs> no, thanks for, thanks for coming on. As I alluded to in the intro there, most people have a, an affinity or uh, know you through a lot of tech reporting. CNET over the years obviously being a big one. The Daily Tech News Show obviously is one of your, uh, well, it, it, it's what you focus every day on pretty much at the moment. So uh, they're, they're the two main ones, I think, but a majority of people will know you for. But what, what I wanted to speak to you about uh, in this episode is something that uh, has been, I believe, close to your heart for many years but has sort of sat to the side and is now growing and growing and growing. And that's you being an author, which goes back, well, when I was doing a little bit of research the other day, quite a few years. Yeah. Um, I, I think I tried my first attempt at a novel in high school. Uh, and then uh, in 1993 is when I was just moved to Austin and I was kind of looking around for a job. So uh, in the time before grad school started and I didn't have a job yet, I started a couple of other novel ideas, uh, one of which had been percolating around uh, when I was an intern at NPR. And the other was just kind of like a really snooty, you know, 21 year old uh, who thinks he's Jack Kerouac attempt. That one never went anywhere. But the the one that, that percolated up at NPR became my first actual novel that I ever kind of put out for anyone else uh, called Boiling Point. Uh, it was e-published in 2000. In fact, the other day I ran across, I actually kept the contract. Uh, it was e-published by a company that went out of business shortly after it was published. I think it was up for a month <laughs> before the dot-com uh, bust took that e-publisher out. And there was all this drama about the publisher hiding out in his garage in New Mexico and oh, wow. weirdness. But uh, thankfully, Real I John McAfee sort of deal. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, over the years, especially through National Novel Writing Month, I, I've continued to enjoy writing and finishing novels. And most of them I have I've put out on my own just sort of to let people know that I do it. And hopefully they enjoy it a little. So, it, you've, it sounds like you've had a passion for writing as well as far back as high school. Was that mm -hmm. something that how, – how did that come to be? Were you, did you always enjoy just writing stories or coming up and being creative in your head as a kid? Or like do you have a sort of a moment or a, a memory of when you sort of went, oh, hey, this is something I really want to do or pursue? Yeah, I, I think it, it stems, like many writers, out of a love of reading. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I always enjoyed – 
reading stories uh, as far back as you know five or six years old. As soon as I was able to really read anything of note, uh, I was checking out books from the library. I have, uh, you know, I, I took place part in in what they called these these summer reading competitions, which really weren't competitions. They were just ways to trick kids into reading a lot of books. And I I would read arms lengths of of children's books. And at a certain point, I started to get the idea that maybe I could make one myself. And I do remember in fourth grade, Mrs. Smith uh, had us all make books. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back on it, it was a piece of construction paper with some folded over paper stapled inside. And mine was about a horse. Uh, (laughs) You know, it was like five pages long. But that really stuck in my head as like, oh my gosh, you could do that. Like anybody could do this. Like I could just write a book. Uh, And I think I think that was the moment where that started to circulate in my head. Uh, and I, you know, I wanted to be lots of things growing up. Uh, if you look at all those books that my parents kept where they would ask you every year, you know, it was an astronaut or a, or a ranger or, <laughs> or a baseball player. Uh, yeah. but one, one that kept coming back was, was somebody who, who would write stories. So the the career path, the, moving into you know radio and and then obviously into tech, was writing. It's it's sort of a part of that journey, especially at CNET, I guess, but a very different style of of writing. Was that one that you enjoyed as well, or was it something to sort of I guess make some money whilst you pursued the the yeah. part that you did enjoy along the way? Well, the the one thing very early on that became clear was you can't make money at writing unless you're very lucky and or good or probably both. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the sensible people in my life were telling me like, you can always write, but you should major in economics or you should go to law school or, you know, all these sensible things that they would tell you. Uh, so I never really pursued writing as a thing on its own. Uh, and, I'd lucked into getting a job at the radio station in my hometown when I was 16. So I started developing a skill for that early. And that's what led me into journalism was the radio stuff. Luckily for me, I needed to take the introduction to journalism class during the summer because I was working Mm -hmm. at the radio station. It was the way I could fit everything in. And Mm -hmm. because it was the summer at the university of Illinois, they offered a broadcast or a print version of that same class. And you could take either one and go into either track. But obviously, if you're going to be in broadcast, you wanted to take the broadcast one. During the summer, they only offered the print one. So even though I was headed to broadcast, I took the print one. And I'm very glad I did. Because (laughs) a former city editor of the Milwaukee Journal taught the class, and he was tough. But I learned how to write. That's where I actually learned how to write. Uh, I'm not going to blame him for any of my future faults after that. If you say, well, (laughs) you you think you learned how to write. But but he really taught us how to use words efficiently uh, and clearly in a journalistic style, of course. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I, I... I'm so thankful that I had to take that print version of the course because that absolutely helped me with my broadcast writing later on as well. In what way was he tough? And how how was it? Was it just a matter of cutting out fluff? Was it bringing you down from your creative like (laughs) heights, or or was it just a a matter of like being really tough on uh, on the way it was presented or the tone of voice? Yeah, (laughs) yes to all of those. Uh, Yeah, okay. (laughs) It was well. First of all, it was a summer course, so we were in class four hours a day. 
and and we were essentially doing three weeks of work every week uh, mm-hmm. uh, or something. Mm-hmm. But he was not going to let deadlines slide. If you missed a deadline, you failed. That was it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So he was tough in that way. He was also tough in that when you handed in your copy, he would bleed over it. Like it would just come back red. Everything you had written would be wrong. Uh, and he was right about everything, but he, it wasn't the like, well, let's bring you along slowly and help you understand. It was like, nope, wrong, nope, bad, uh, not in the right place, move, you know, and it, it was not soft pedaled and it was rushed. So you just had to learn to do it. Uh, and <laughs> like, I, I remember, you know, I don't want to be too overdramatic, but you know, I don't want to say something like I contemplated killing myself or something crazy like that. But I remember thinking like, do I even want to be here anymore? Do I, do I just want to leave? Yeah, do yeah. I want to run off into the country. Uh, and, 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 and no, I didn't. Uh, but, but it was that tough where I was like, I, I don't know if I can do this, but I did it. Uh, and I passed the class and uh, am a much better writer for it. But yeah, he was, he was tough on you in pretty much every way you can imagine. Getting back to the creative stuff, obviously you've got a, a great affinity with reading and obviously you have another show, um, Sword and Laser, with Veronica Belmont that focused on um, science fiction and fantasy novels and so forth. And and I assume that was a big part of, of where your passion lied with what you read growing up was science fiction and, and fantasy or or is that something that's evolved or or changed over the years for you? Evolved a little bit. I mean, I was always a big fan of science fiction and fantasy, uh, especially on television and movies. Huge Star Wars fan and a huge Star Trek fan from the beginning. Uh, well, not quite the beginning with Star Trek, but from my <laughs> exposure to it in like, you mm-hmm. know, 76 after it had been off the air for a few years. Um, and I was always struggling to say, well, I would like to write a sci-fi story. In fact, that first, that story, I, that novel that I wrote in high school was a, a time travel spaceship story, mm-hmm. but worried that that wouldn't, that wouldn't be accepted. Uh, it kind of went hand in hand with the, the, the advice of you need to go to law school. You need to get a real job was like, well, even if I became a writer, I'd have to write literature, you know, if I'm going to mm-hmm. be taken seriously. Uh, mm-hmm. and so it took me many years to get comfortable with the idea that no, I could just write what I want, write, write what I like. And, and, and I think the big turning point for me was internet publishing. The idea, even before Lulu or this print on demand stuff, but uh, mm-hmm. just the idea of, well, even if it's not sold, I love to write. And the idea that I could just get people to read it in, in larger amounts than I could if I handed it out to my friends was enough motivation to say, you know what, just write what you want. Don't worry about whether it's considered great literature or whether it's going to be commercially successful and, and just do it because you love it. That's a that's a good point that you raised with with self-publishing because uh, you mentioned already that you self-published, well, e-published Boiling Point back in 2000, but other titles since then you've self-published through Amazon or how, how have you gone about that? Lulu.com for the most part. Okay. Although I do yep. put them through Amazon Kindle for the for the uh, Kindle versions. Right. Okay. So, uh, all of them up until Pilot X or some of them, like how, how many like have gone through that process? I think eight have gone through that eight, process. Yeah. Uh, se- several before Pilot X and then one since Pilot X came out. 
Okay. Has that been a good experience for you? Would you recommend others sort of follow that path or journey if they're looking to publish the novels? Well, the, the one thing I can say after hosting Sword and Laser and talking to authors as much as I have and, and being lucky enough to spend some time with them is if you want to be a successful author, there is a pl- path through self-publishing that probably ends with you getting an agent and a major publishing deal. That is still mm-hmm. the way to be successful. Even Hugh Howie and the others who have had amazing success with self-publishing all end up with publishing deals because what a publisher can give you as far as promotions and marketing, if you're successful and have an audience, will absolutely pay for the amount you lose by not having full control and not getting all the royalties you would get from self-publishing. So if, mm-hmm. if that's your path, then self-publishing can maybe get you some exposure and get you in the door, but you're going to want to end up being with a publisher eventually. What yeah. I did was say, I don't care about that. I don't have the time nor the inclination to bother doing the things that I need to do to get an agent and a publisher, knowing that you have to go through a lot of rejection to get that. I'm going to use self-publishing as my end goal. I'm just going to put it out there. uh, And I'll tell as many people as I can through my podcast and everything else that it's there. And hopefully they'll enjoy it. And I have gotten some great feedback from people about it. But uh, Inkshares, who published Pilot X, was attractive to me because it combined those two. It said, Mm. you don't need an agent. You just need your audience. The people on the internet will vote on whether your book gets published or not. And then if they will put their money where their mouth is and pre-order 750 copies, that's enough for them to then step in and act like a major publisher with marketing and promotions and all of that. So that's Mm -hmm. why Pilot Mm -hmm. X is a bit of a step above as far as awareness and sales and and showing up in bookstores and the like. So many points I, I want to run back and touch on yeah, sure, what you sorry. just said. <laughs> no, it's okay. First one is, uh, uh, if I can remember it now, you mentioned that, you know, through you, you've jumped to your end goal with with self publishing. Um, for a lot of authors that I know, you know, getting that literary agent is the first step yeah. or first major step before they head into the, the big bad world of publishing. And I've got friends that sit across the spectrum, uh, some that purely self publish on Amazon and have never really gotten their feet off the ground, unfortunately. And then I've got others at the other end who have worked on a, a novel series for for teens for the the good part of 15 years and have finally got that literary agent that's signed them onto a three book deal without doing anything in the middle. So, um, and then, you know, you're sitting sort of dead center because of time being, uh, uh, you know, this isn't your livelihood, although it, it contributes to it. It's not, you know, your, your main focus. So, you don't really have that inclination to need that literary agent or go that full publishing movie rights sort of route. It'd be nice, I assume, if that yes, happened. But no, uh, it's, it's <laughs> I, I, it just in the past couple of years, I've, I've started to think maybe I should buckle down and, and go through all of that that you need to do. And if any agent listening wants to email me, do Tom Merritt at email. <laughs> um, time is a big uh, point that I want to focus on because I don't imagine you have any. So, I don't understand how writing novels fits into <laughs> your life at all. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you schedule it in? Like, or is it a matter of scheduling it in that you need to allot time to write? Like, yeah. How, or is it just when you have the, the, the inclination to, or a story in your head that you have to get out? Like, how does that work? 
I used to need to sit down and have a space where I wrote and got into my writer head. Uh, but I found over the years, uh, mostly because of doing National Novel Writing Month, that I enjoyed writing enough that I could do it anywhere if I if I set the conditions right for myself. And I'm not, I don't pretend that this is going to work for anyone else but myself. But what I do now is I have a task on my task list. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I have a task list that says these are the things you have to get done today. And one of those tasks is to write or edit any amount of time so that I never feel bad about it unless I don't do it at all. Uh, so even if I just sit down and look at something I've written and read a couple of paragraphs and tweak a couple of things that counts, I get to check it off my list. The reason I do that is so that I don't resist doing it at all because it's too hard. That that's my failing. It's like, Oh, I don't want to do that because I don't have an hour. So I make it easy to do. I can get it off my list with no problem. And more often than not, I have more time than that. And so when I have 15 minutes or a half hour, I just sit down and I knock out a few paragraphs of something usually that I've already written. And then every year during National Novel Writing Month, I take part. National Novel Writing Month is a challenge to write 50,000 words in a month. So over the course of the month, you write around 16, 1700 words a day. And that's when I actually do the majority of my original writing is I force myself every day to to make the time to spend, to, to write that 1500 to 2000 words. Usually I try to get ahead earlier in the month. So it becomes easier as the month goes on. Uh, cause there's not as many words to hit the goal every day, but mm. that's where I create my book. And then I spend the rest of the year editing it, just going back wow. and, and finding places where the plot was inconsistent or the writing needed work or fixing typos, even stuff like that. Uh, and then once I get, I've gone through a book a couple of times with the editing, then I will decide what I want to do with it, whether I want to self-publish it or send it to ink shares or something like that. So that's the way I get the writing done is just with the tasks. But but the majority is done in that one month, you'd say. The origination of a story from scratch is mostly done in that one month. Every once in a while, I'll have a really good idea uh, and I'll jot down pieces and that'll be my writing for the day. In fact, usually what I'm writing in November is... A, is pulled from a collection of those little notes that I've done. I, I, I usually have a story percolating all year long. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it has become the pattern for me and I'll have written down pieces of it, you know, m- probably less than a thousand words. And then in November I'll decide, okay, I'm going to turn that into an actual full story. So you're writing down pieces as you go along throughout the year, like little ideas or uh, creative snippets that you want to put into a story. What other tools are you using to develop the story or actually write the story? Like, Is there a particular, you know, some writers prefer a particular application even that they write in or are you just using straight up Google Docs or... <laughs> Um, what, what works for you as you're, you know, punching out the story? Yeah. over? I actually use, uh, simple note and Google docs to keep those mm-hmm. snippets of stories throughout the year, because I want them to be available no matter what device I have. If I have my phone with me and I've got some time and I just want to pop down a couple of ideas, uh, then I can access Google docs or simple note, um, depending I don't know why I choose one over the other, to be honest. It's kind of whatever mood I'm in. Uh, and then, and then I use Microsoft word 
once I've pulled it all together after for the editing. So even mm-hmm. in NaNoWriMo, I'll still write the novel in Google Docs again. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been times like at BlizzCon last year, up in the hotel room at the end of the night, I pounded out my 1600 words in a phone. <laughs> yeah, wow. A lot of typos. Okay. A lot of yeah, typos that's in not- that. But I was able to do it because I was doing it in Google Docs. And then once I'm done with it at the end of November, then I put it in a Microsoft Word for the editing because it's going to make it easier to format it for, for publishing later. Do you ever go the route of just recording your voice? Like, do you ever have an idea or um, even even part of the story that you you know you don't want to write sixteen hundred words on your phone, but you just want to dictate it or punch it out in in that particular fashion? No, I tried using uh, speech to text to to do some NaNoWriMo one year, and it just wasn't quite good enough yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think everyone says that every year yeah. for the last 15. One of, the, yeah. one of these years I'll say, I tried it last year and it worked. Uh, but this was not that year. So, uh, so yeah, no, I don't do that. And I don't do dictation stuff because then I have to go back and transcribe it. So to me, mm-hmm. it's just easier to put it down in text right away. What about character development and, and storylines? How are you keeping a track of those as you write write them or the story evolves and especially when it comes to time travel which you mentioned was in you the first novel that you were writing back in high school and is also you know focus of of your most well not the most recent but the one before pilot x well i i use the the notes that i use going up to the story generally will have created the characters and sketched those out so i'll keep those notes at the ready uh i will often put notes at the end of my doc during NaNoWriMo to both remind me of who's who, but also mm-hmm. kind of chart where I'm going. So I don't necessarily have an outline, but I'll have like the pieces that I know exist of the story that I want to shoot for. And I'll, I'll basically write till I get to that landing point and say, okay, I, I got Vera to the hidden kingdom. Uh, what's my next destination now? Oh, okay. She's going to get kidnapped. Let's write to that, you know, and uh, I'll just jump from piece to piece. So those are all notes that are just kind of at the end of my dock so I can easily mm-hmm. see them. Part of the, the, not the detract, I'm trying to think of a word for it, but I, I enjoy writing and I've done my share of creative writing and actually had a, a weird deal probably 15 no longer now 20 years ago Hmm. but for a novel but that never came to fruition i had a big issue with deadlines i i couldn't write to a deadline it just wasn't the way it worked for me and that was part and parcel because i never had a regimented scheme of uh, of writing every day it was just something that i sort of it came into my head one day I, i wrote and someone was sort of interested in it at the time when uh when i was trying to keep a track of everything and where people were going i love the idea of plotting things out and saying this person's going here and this person's doing that but filling the gaps seemed like a chore at at times to me if that makes sense Mm -hmm. like yeah it does putting in the descriptive sort of section is like you know exactly where this person is going but i need to spend four to five hundred words on that journey for the reader which you know is the ultimate goal of describing everything and making them understand but at the same time felt quite laborious <laughs> as i was doing it yeah do you ever get sort of bogged down in, in any of the writing and then sort of have to walk away or, or you know what's your process for dealing with that type of stuff yeah my my, my way of dealing with that has changed over the years because I, i've definitely run into that uh, as all writers do i think and nano gives you the permission to not worry about it 
the the overriding principle during that month is you hit 50,000 words. They don't have to be good words. Uh, they can be, you know, all work and no play makes Tom a dull boy. Doesn't matter. Just write. And so when I hit that that point, I re- I think, well, if I'm bored, maybe the reader is too. Well, let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Let me do something else. Let me just write the crappiest stuff I can think of. It doesn't matter if it's awful. Just get me out of this situation because all I need to do is hit that 1600 words today. And giving yourself the permission to do that has a, has a few effects. One of which is I will often go through it to a point where I'm like, oh, well, this is interesting. And, and suddenly you know, catch my traction again with the story. And the other thing is all the mistakes I make because of my process involves editing later, get fixed. Mm -hmm. Later on is when I worry about, did I get the description right? Is the character consistent? You know, did, did I tell enough that the reader understand that all gets fixed in the editing? And I usually find it's not nearly as bad as it felt when I was writing it, Mm -hmm. you know, where I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is horrible. Like nobody's going to understand why she's here and why she's doing that. And then you go back later and like, Oh, well you really just need one line and then they'll understand, you know, like it's, it's always feels a lot worse when you're writing it. I think. For those of you who don't know what NaNoWriMo is, that's the abbreviation for National Novel Writing Month. So I had to look it up myself as you were saying. I'm trying to be good about calling it that full name. (laughs) No, it's okay. You said it a couple of times. I'm like, is that an application? No, it's National Writers Month. That's fine. Um, When do you let someone read your novel? At what point are you okay with it? Or is it a process that you're, uh, you know, is Elaine... Um, having to deal with it all the way through. Yeah, no, she she <laughs> she will dispute this. I don't think she reads any of them, frankly. Um, she says she loves them all, and they're all great. Uh, that's Tom's wife, yeah, by the way. Yeah, we're talking. <laughs> um, but yeah, she. I I am ready for anyone to read it once I've gone through the editing a couple of times. Uh, okay. You, they, I I wouldn't mind someone reading it beforehand, but it's just going to be less useful because they're going to start pointing out things that I will catch anyway when I'm going through my editing passes. So where I want people to read it and where it's most helpful is I think I've caught most of the problems. Now you look and tell me which things I haven't caught. So, so that's kind of my idea. I've been really bad at setting up beta readers, but when I have successfully done it, it works great uh, because you will always have someone. In fact, pilot X uh, there is a scene near the end with him and a woman that he has deep feelings for that didn't exist in the, in the, in my edited draft. And one of my beta readers was like, you know, I think you need to show them demonstrating the feelings. He was absolutely right. Uh, and, Mm -hmm. and it helped tremendously to have that feedback. There isn't a, a, a particular pool that you go to all the time for, for feedback on. I would on love writing to have then. that pool. I, I have a couple of people like him. Uh, author JF Dubow is great about helping out uh, and beta reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that, that is something I need to do is is develop a, a a standing group of people who are always willing to to pitch in and read. How does the feedback process work for you? Like some, for instance, in this particular um, example that you had someone comes back with a suggestion is that are you good at receiving suggestions are you uh protective of your work how do, how do you deal with that it depends on the suggestions uh <laughs> and i've gotten better at instructing people i don't need them to correct the grammar even if it's wrong mm-hmm. 
that's why I pay a copy editor later. <laughs> so I get a yeah, little, yeah. I get a little I less frustrated than I used to, but I get a little frustrated and like, well, you've got a past tense here or this is misspelled. I'm like, that's not, that's I'm not worried about that yet. You know, cause I go in yeah, stages, yeah. right. And this is the stage where I'm like, I want to know about the story. Does the story make sense? That stuff, thankfully, because I went through that horrible journalism class, I'm very good at at being open to like, oh yeah, no, that that's right. That doesn't make sense. Or, or at least being able to say, well, this is why I did it that way. Are you, now that I've explained that, does it make sense or is it still confusing? Because everybody brings their own experiences and has a different viewpoint. Uh, so there are going to be things that people don't get because they just don't get it, but it still works. And that's a good reason to have multiple people reading your book, because if all of them are having the same problem, then it definitely needs to be fixed. If only one of them does, it might still need to be fixed, or it might just be something that they, their experience doesn't inform them on. And that's worth considering too. Like, well, wait a minute, how many other people like them are, am I leaving out, et cetera. But yeah, I, I've gotten pretty good at that kind of taking that kind of feedback again, because in that journalism class, I didn't have time. There were no excuses. I didn't have time to explain. It just got a trial by fire, uh, learned how to, how to take editorial feedback like that. Are you often just giving the whole book to, to someone to read or are you giving, uh, but would you go back to someone and say, Hey, uh, I've rewritten this section. Do you think it works better or worse? Or is that, is it an, an evolving process mm-hmm. that you'll, go back to the well or yeah or- yeah in fact even though most of the time i give them the whole book uh if i have redone let's let's take for example that pilot x section i will mm-hmm. when i fix it i will send that and say hey look at it now and see if it still works i don't really need them to read reread the whole thing at that point uh i have also taken a section and given it to somebody just like a chapter and said hey read this because you are an expert in military fiction or you, or you are a sysadmin, uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, and just say like, tell me what you think of, of this chapter. Does it ring true to you? So I have done that a couple of times. Do you have a, a mentor in your writing or, or have had one in the past? I've, yeah, I'm no, I don't have a mentor right now. And I, I, I would like, in fact, there's a, there's an author friend of mine who lives not too far from me in the new place that I just moved into that we, we keep wanting to get together and, and do writing sessions together. And I would, I would love to do more of that. Um, Mm -hmm. sort of my, my writing buddy in the nineties, uh, was a poet friend of mine. We're still friends. Uh, Mm. but, but she doesn't, she edited a few of my self-published books actually, but she, she just doesn't have the time to do that anymore. Uh, so Mm -hmm. yeah, I've, I've always found it helpful to have someone that you can closely bounce your ideas off of, for sure. You're now working on a sequel to Pilot X, correct? I have handed it into Inkshares, actually. Um, oh, there you go. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm oh, waiting really? for the editor to to get back to me with the feedback of, of what all needs to, to be fixed on it. But yeah. What was it like writing your first sequel? Is that right? Yeah. It's interesting because there were two things going on with this. Every book I write, I try to set myself a challenge. So when I wrote the book Lot Beta, I was trying to retell the story of Arthur in a way that was not immediately recognizable as the story of Arthur. Uh, when I wrote mm-hmm. United Moon Colonies, uh, I was I was trying to tell the story of the Revolutionary War without it being that. Uh, there are other. I wrote a book called. Uh, <laughs> uh, what was it called? It was about my dogs being detectives. Uh, a, a natural 
uh, events of a different nature. Ah, thank you. That's it. That's the one. <laughs> so my 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 <laughs> challenge there was to have two main characters be dogs, but never admit it in the text that they are dogs. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so my challenge with the sequel to Pilot X was to actually write a story that had been plotted out beforehand, specifically to not only be a sequel, but be the kind of story that might lend itself well to a visual treatment. Because my Inkshares editor and the the CEO of Inkshares was like, you could get a book optioned, but Pilot X won't get optioned because your aliens are too expensive and you have too many set mm-hmm. scenes. And so I, instead mm-hmm. of resisting that and saying, well, you can't tell me how to write my stories. I was like, all right, I'm going to take, this is going to be my next challenge. What if, how do I fit myself into those restrictions and t- still tell a compelling story? That is a sequel, right? One of the mm-hmm. things about pilot X that's easy as a sequel is the way it ends with Pilot X's story. It gives me a lot of latitude, not to get spoilery, but it it doesn't leave a lot (laughs) that you have to carry on other than Pilot X and his time ship. So that that made it a little easier too. But it was really fun to go forward with Pilot X knowing him. I had never, it was always exploring a character in every other story I'd written. And this one, I was like, okay, I know who he is. Now I have the challenge of, talking about how he will react to the trauma that happened to him in the first story. So was that easier or more difficult for you as, as a writer? I don't know that it was either. Uh, it, it certainly wasn't easy, but it wasn't any more difficult than creating him. It was just a different challenge mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, I'm creating a part of him now. Uh, I guess whether it was <laughs> too difficult or not, which should be left as an exercise for the reader. Um, but I, I think I did okay in having him still be p- the pilot X. I mean, pilot X changes throughout the first book. And I think he's still the same pilot X. You got to understand at the end of his personal chronology in book one, uh, and justifiably acting different because of the events that happened to him in that story. Is there a little bit of you in your characters or are they taken from other people? Like how, how do you, like his pilot, his pilot X Tom yeah, Merritt right. as an astronaut when he was a kid. I've asked so many you know, authors this question. I could just cobble together all of their <laughs> answers uh, into, into the, this one. Um, but the way I write, I, and I think the way all authors write, Every character is a little bit you. You just, you cannot mm-hmm. help it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and any author who says they can't is either extraordinarily talented, uh, which could be possible, or lying. Um, but you also don't want every character to be you. That's the biggest mistake. So I do channel people into the characters I write. Um, in fact, my book, Gallium, every single person in it is modeled after the personality of someone I know. It doesn't mean that that character does the things that that person does. They they live in a mining system, you know, in a galaxy far away. They're obviously not the same people, but but you know, there's there's also some people that are combinations of people. So I take elements of three different friends that I know and put them all in one person and that now we've got kind of a remix, like like a new personality. Um, but yeah, there's always one character that's probably closer to me than anyone else. Pilot X is definitely not me. Um, <laughs> there is a character in, I think it's in the sequel that is 
absolutely that is me like that that i avowedly in my head was like okay and now i show up as this person okay <laughs> and i do that there's a yeah. there's a little easter egg for everyone right, to right. try and figure out <laughs> so they eat a lot of pie is that there is a lot of pie in the sequel <laughs> uh but not everyone i mean pilot x loves pie and coffee so that is obviously taken from me um but yeah uh the search the sequel is essentially the search for pie and coffee in a universe uh, where the previous planet that produced coffee may or may not exist anymore. Mm. One more thing on Pilot X, the audio version. Was was this the first time you had done an audio book? No, I have done audio versions of almost all my books myself. Okay. I just released them for free. Uh, I've also Mm -hmm. done the audio for my book Pavaria and put it up on Audible. But Pilot X was Mm -hmm. the first time that I had ever had something up on Audible because I hadn't put Bavaria out yet. And it was the first time I'd had someone else read one of my books. Uh, They were hired by Inkshares. We did a quick Mm -hmm. call one day where he pretty much just wanted to ask how to pronounce a few things and had a a few questions about the personalities involved. Uh, But then Mm -hmm. he, he just did it in, and the production company they hired did it and did a great job. I was very pleased. So that that was literally your entire involvement in the process was that that one yeah, phone call. Yeah. And I, from what wow. I I talk to other authors, a lot of times they don't even get that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No. Because because it came off really well. That I think I listened to probably half and read half. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's always scary when you go into an audio book after reading a bit because you've developed those voices in your mind and what you think yeah. they're going to sound like, or the tone of voice, or the way they act, and, and things like that. So. Um, no, they did, a, they did a really well job. It was it was essentially what I'd done, whereas I'd done, I did the same thing with Game of Thrones after seeing the first season on TV and then reading the books and then re, uh, audio booking one of the, the novels down the track and it was just I couldn't do yeah, it. I had different. to stop listening yeah. to it. Yeah, I mean, it, completely it, different. I, so, I read yeah. the audio book of one before the show came out and it was different than the audio in my mind. Uh, and I know mm. just from memory that it's very different from <laughs> what you see on TV. So there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there. It has yeah, inspired yeah. me, though, to hire someone to read uh, my current book, Gallium. So I have that okay. sitting on my hard drive. I mean, this this week, I, I should be able to have it uploaded. And, and, and however long it takes Audible to get it in their catalog, it'll be there. But uh, Gallium will be read by Veronica Belmont. Oh, fantastic. We're uh, we're rapidly approaching the end of the the show. I know you've got to leave, but I, I will just ask a couple more questions. The current the current state of books and novels in this world of uh, social media, short attention spans, you know, whatever the media want to tell us, this new generation believes in or doesn't believe in. How do how's it all working out for you? It seems to be working out very well. I. <laughs> I, I see a, a lot of articles about the resurgence of print sales and how mm-hmm. especially millennials tend to prefer printed books over ebooks. Uh, audiobooks are obviously also taking off. Uh, in fact, print and audio seem to be the strongest of the the book markets. Uh, not that ebook is is dying or anything, but you you would have thought ebook would just kill everything. Uh, so yeah, it's it's working out quite well. I, j- I just need to to get more people aware of my books i think that's the biggest issue well yeah so marketing is a big 
big change, I think, in, in books at the moment. You know, every book has a trailer, which is actually, a, you know, a video mm-hmm. trailer. Even your Inkshares uh, pages and, and novels on there have trailers, which is was quite, you know, that that's something that you never would have thought of a book would yeah. have, say, 20 years ago or 15 years ago even. So, I think the marketing of books has definitely changed, but it's difficult to, you know, you see a bus go past with, Tom Clancy, to think of, uh, yeah, Clancy or something. You know, that's not going to be for everyone. So a, a lot of that social media swell and uh, relying on word of mouth through the digital age is is a big part of it these days. But you, a lot of self promotion, I imagine, and and not having a fear of self promotion yeah. would be a big part of it too. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's easiest at the beginning and at the end. Uh, if if you're mm-hmm. just starting out. Uh, it's it's easier than ever to promote because you can self-promote on Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy if you're John Scalzi uh, or, or George R. R. Martin because everyone knows your name and wants to read your next book. Uh, it's in the middle mm. there where, where it gets really tough. And then my last question, do you have any uh, author heroes? Like for me personally, Douglas Adams was someone who uh, touched me at reading Hitchhiker's Guide from a very young age and and very heavily influenced the way that I write quite sarcastically and metaphorically and um, dry. Uh, who, who are your go-to sort of, you know, if, if we were stuck on a desert island type yeah, of yeah. authors? Well, this is why we get along so well because Douglas Adams was very formative. Like I, I discovered Douglas Adams when I was in eighth grade and we were taking my yeah. sister up to drop her off at college and we stopped at a bookshop and I bought Hitchhiker's Guide and was just blown away. Uh, by also Philip K. Dick. All of his novels Mm -hmm. uh, are are very influential on concepts and, and sort of, you know, mind bending things and and subverting expectations. Uh, I'm a big fan of Tolkien. I'm a big fan of Frank Herbert's writings. I've read both of those multiple times and C.S. Lewis was fundamental as a kid uh, as sort of exposing me to, to fantasy writing and, and, and world building. That's awesome. Uh, I just want to say thanks, Tom. It's been uh, really uh, eye-opening and, and interesting to hear your perspective on writing, and, and I'm sure that everyone that's listening is uh, is thanking you just as much as I am. So, you know, thanks so much for joining me on the show. I really appreciate oh, it. No, thank you. Uh, it's it's uh, fun to talk about stuff like this. So I was glad you were interested. And a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters who have made this recording possible. I could not have done it without you. And I hope you've enjoyed the special episode made just for you. Of course, keep up to date with everything we've got going on the website at reckoner.com.au. And you can follow Tom on his Twitter at... Ace Detect. A-C-E-T-E-C-T. It's a long story. You can just look up Tom Merritt, though. It usually shows up. Or TomMerrittBooks.com. Fantastic. Thanks once again, Tom. And we'll catch everyone for the next episode next month.